Welcome to We Need to Talk About Tech, where we talk about the past, present, and future of technology. Hello, everyone in podcast land. Welcome to this week's episode. Today, we're talking about Google I.O., rumors and what to expect for the upcoming event. We talk about Meta possibly coming out with four more VR headsets by 2024. We talk about the brand new Twitter circle feature that limits your tweets to a small group of friends. And we talk about Apple's self-repair program going live. Starting off with topic number one, Google I.O. is coming soon. I believe it's scheduled to start May 11th, so about a week from today. And I guess we're a bit late saying this. May the 4th be with you all. Happy Star Wars Day. Uh, uh, But yeah, Google I.O. is around the corner. Nothing, I guess, too major to report in terms of, you know, leaks and rumors. Although one thing that has been talked about, I guess, more frequently recently is a Pixel Watch. I mean, pretty much since the Apple Watch came out, there's been talks and rumors of Google coming out with a wearable of their own. I mean, they've They've made watchOS. They there is an Android software on a lot of smartwatches. But I mean, pretty much most smartwatches that aren't Apple. But there hasn't been a dedicated smartwatch from Google or from a Pixel device. So we've gotten a lot of rumors over the years. We've actually recently gotten. I think someone left a, a Pixel watch. What people are saying is a Pixel watch at a restaurant or at a bar and then someone took it home and gave it to one of their friends who happened to be a tech enthusiast. And then that person took some pictures, put it up on Reddit. And so it seems like, and these are the rumors. It seems like we're definitely going to get, well, I say rumors and then definitely right after it seems like we're probably going to get a pixel watch this Google IO. Now, in my opinion, I think it's definitely long overdue. But hopefully, hopefully they've been waiting for so long to release a Pixel Watch, to release a Google branded watch because they want to make sure they get it right. You know, they don't want to they don't want to rush into the market of smartwatches, which is a pretty popular market. And they want to make sure that they nail everything before they put out a device. So I hope that we get a Pixel Watch. I think we will, especially after this most recent leak. You know, we've seen one out in the wild, so to say. Um, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to I.O. I don't really expect much else from Google I.O. I don't think they typically show off, you know, a new phone around this time. So I think the only piece of hardware that we're really looking forward or that people can really look forward to is the smartwatch. Now, I know you are an Android user. You're someone who has a smartwatch. Have you seen, I guess, some of the more recent renders of the Pixel Watch is it something that you're looking forward to or do you think it's kind of, you know, a bit too late for Pixel to be coming out with a smartwatch of their own? I definitely don't think it's too late. Uh, and I have seen a lot of the renders and the pictures and even the leaked, uh, the potentially leaked uh, smartwatch that was left at the restaurant slash bar. But I love smartwatches. I think they're fantastic. I think there's one big problem with smartwatches and that is they were perfected a long time ago and it doesn't take much to make a good smartwatch. 
And unfortunately, because it doesn't take much to make a good smartwatch, especially if you're on the Android side, when you buy a smartwatch, you probably don't ever need to upgrade it. Uh, and I think that's been a problem with the Android smartwatch uh, market for a while is that, and probably why Google has struggled so much to get into it. It's, it's, well, how do we make something that people already, that don't already have with a, a Samsung watch or an Asus watch or a, a Fossil watch? You know, all these companies make Android Wear watches. And despite the fact that a lot of them release one, a new one every year or every couple of years, it doesn't really matter. There isn't much difference. And I think that stems from the fact that Android Wear has been getting worse over the years. It's not the best in terms of software uh, for a smartwatch. Honestly, I think early on when Android Wear first came out, and especially in its earlier iterations with like the Asus Zen watch and like the, the LG uh, watch from back in the day, or even the first generation Moto 360 and the second generation Moto 360, uh, I thought Android Wear was was near perfect. It did what it needed to do. It gave you your your uh, notifications right on your wrist. It lets you interact with your phone right on your wrist, wrist answer calls, uh, make calls. A lot of them had speakers already integrated into them. And it allowed you to use it independently from your phone. You could use it on Wi-Fi. You could uh, load music on it on its internal storage so that what I used to do, I used to go for a walk with my watch, leave my phone at home, and I would have Bluetooth headphones connected to my watch and I can go for a walk or a run or whatever. Not run. I don't really exercise, but I could go for a walk uh, and listen to music and not have to worry about having my phone with me, uh, which is great. The problem is because it's just a watch and that stuff is easy to do, it became hard for companies to encourage you to get the Asus and Watch 3 and the new Samsung watch and all this and all that. So what happened was, Google started messing with something that wasn't broken and they changed Android Wear and cont continuously made it worse. And Samsung said, you know what, we're going to ditch Android Wear altogether and go with our own OS. Uh, so ever since then, I think there's been a huge issue of, of convincing people that Android Wear is something worth using. Uh, and, you know, I, I, hopefully this is a, a sign if this watch does get shown at Google I.O., like you mentioned, Google I.O. isn't typically an event where hardware is, is revealed. But this could be a sign for them to say, hey, last year they announced they were partnering with Samsung going forward and they were going to work together on a on a unified OS called Wear OS 3. Uh, and hopefully this is if they do show this watch at I.O., this is them saying, hey, we're going to take design of the OS and make that the forefront of, of what we're talking about here. So, yeah, there's going to be new hardware, but that doesn't matter uh, because when it comes to watch hardware, it doesn't really matter. As long as it's a round watch face, people will like it. It's the software and how you interact with it. And Samsung has done a great job with their version of, of smartwatches in recent memory. So maybe this is Google saying, hey, we learned from our mistakes. We learned from Samsung's successes. We're going to do that. As to what else is going to happen in Google I.O., I don't know. Uh, there are there have been rumors that we might see a Pixel 6a. and But like you said, we don't usually see a lot of stuff there. And it's the weird thing is that Google doesn't really have a time frame for when they announce anything. Something can get leaked two years ago and we won't see it for another two <laughs> years. So it's kind of weird to to imagine when we might see a Pixel 6a. Maybe it might be after the Pixel 7 comes out. It's happened in the past. And it might be the same thing with the Pixel Watch. But if they do show off both of those devices at I.O., 
uh, I think that could be pretty exciting. And, and for people who aren't just obsessed with, you know, the, the software uh, that Google's presenting, maybe it might give a little bit more excitement to that event. That being said, I, I always think that the, the showstopper for Google I.O. is going to be how Google uses its uh, AI to integrate it into Android. Uh, we've seen it with Project Duplex in the past, which to me is still one of the coolest things ever. I would love to see how they're going to expand that. Um, but overall, if they do show off a new phone or a new watch, that will probably be the most exciting news. But uh, do you think there's anything from the Apple Watch side that maybe Google should look at to say, hey, this is the number one feature that you need to make a successful watch? I think from the Apple Watch side, the thing that would be the best is a a robust fitness tracker. Mm. I think that's one of the things that people find most, or I don't know, maybe I'm a little bit biased because that's what I find most useful about the Apple Watch. But I think the fitness tracking aspect is is something that people really like. And, you know, for those of you that don't have an Apple Watch, you have, let's say, three rings. It's a move ring. It's, uh, you know, how much, how long you were active for, and then a stand ring. And every time you complete a ring, it does this, you know, flashy little circle, some fireworks pop up. And so you feel, oh, hey, you know, nice. I closed all my rings. Fitbit has something similar. Every time you hit a milestone, I think it's 5,000, 10,000 steps. Your screen lights up and, you know, fireworks shoot out. And it's like, oh, congratulations on doing that. I mean, it's not that complicated, but I think for one, got to give people fireworks on their watch. That always makes people feel good. Mm -hmm. But also one fun thing about Apple watch is it has a competition feature. So you, or yeah, you and a friend can share your activity and you can launch into competitions with each other. So for the week, we're going to see who stands the most, who moves the most, who's active the most throughout the week, and then someone gets a trophy at the end of it. I think if right off the bat, if they can include something like that in their fitness tracking, I think that would go a long way for a lot of people. Another common complaint about Apple's fitness trackers is that you can only do one-to-one competitions with people. So let's say there's a group of four of us. You have a group of friends in your office and you want to compete with all of your friends at once. You can't do that. You have to have four separate competitions. Mm. And a lot of people are saying, well, there are a bunch of third-party apps that will take your fitness uh, competitions and then group them all together. But it really should just be built into the watch interface or built into your phone interface. And I think, and personally, you know, for the Pixel watch, I don't want to see fitness tracking. I want to see competitions, not just one-on-one, but, you know, group competitions. And I want to see fireworks on the screen. I think (laughs) you get those three things. You got a pretty good watch. I mean, assuming it can, you know, it gives you notifications. You can get text messages. You can answer them. You can, you know, maybe pick up phone calls if you're on the same Wi-Fi as your phone. I think those things and they would have a successful watch. And, you know, you brought up, you brought up a very good point. It's smartwatches are pretty simple. There isn't, you know, the recipe is down. There isn't too much that you can throw at it. And maybe Google was waiting for, okay, this brand new watch feature that no one's going to be able to do. And we're going to have that in our watch and it's going to set us apart from everyone else. But well, watches have been pretty similar. I mean, if you look at Apple, they're still 
selling the Apple Watch 3. They're on yeah. the Apple Watch 7 coming out with the Apple Watch 8 this year. So it's like if Apple is still, if they still feel they can sell you a watch that's what, five years old, not much has changed in those five years. Like, okay, for Apple's like tweaks of design, maybe a little bit more uh, accurate of a, of a heartbeat sensor, let's say. But not that much has changed and there isn't that much that they can change. I remember before we were talking about, oh, Apple was saying they were going to add oxygen saturation levels to your watch and they were going to add this and that. Like, eh, I mean, really the only accurate thing you can do is heart rate. And even then, it's not the most accurate. It's pretty accurate, but I think there were talks that they were going to do, you know, like I said, oxygen saturation. They're going to do blood glucose levels. They're going to do all this other stuff. But it's like for something that's not invasive, pretty much heart rate is the limit. And anything outside of that is just a, a lot of guessing that isn't going to be accurate at all. So yeah. I think the smartwatch formula is pretty much done i mean unless people start putting cameras on smartwatches, maybe that's the next big thing but yeah i think hopefully they finally come out with it if we've gone through all this if people have left the pixel watch at a restaurant or, you know and it still doesn't come out this month i think all hope is lost for the pixel watch yeah um like many things at google you know have a start and then they just get shut down for no reason and we never see anything fruitful from it. But yeah, I don't know. I hope we see the Pixel Watch. I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see the Pixel Watch and if we never see a Pixel Watch. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. All right. Next up on the episode, we'll be talking about Meta, the company formerly known as Facebook. And I guess the company formerly known as Oculus too, because it'll be coming out with a new headset as soon as September 2022. So I guess probably the most popular, one of the most popular VR headsets is the Oculus Quest 2, which is actually called the MetaQuest 2 now. It's a fairly entry-level VR headset. goes for $299. It's pretty popular. It's pretty well-received. Meta will be coming out with their first high-end VR headset, which is codenamed Project Cambria. And it's actually supposed to come out as soon as September 2022, so September this year. Now, as I mentioned, the Oculus Quest 2, pretty entry-level, $299 entry-level for VR headsets. The Project Cambria headset is rumored to be around $799, so more than twice as much as their uh, Oculus Quest. Mm -hmm. um, now, we've talked, I think, way back in episode 63, so quite some time ago, back in 2021, we talked a little bit about Project Cambria. There was a few leaks going on about it. It's supposed to be pretty high-end. It's supposed to have facial tracking features where it can track where your eyes are looking. It can track to see what kind of expressions you're making on your face. There's supposed to be higher resolution, colored mixed reality, pass through virtual reality, augmented reality mixed together. It's supposed to be a very impressive headset. I mean, for $799, it better be impressive. But I think this is, I don't know, this is going to be 
a big step for Meta for one, and I think a big barometer for VR headsets in general. If they're able to, you know, put out this very high-end headset for twice as much as the Quest 2, and it, you know, it's successful, I think that really shows that, okay, Facebook changing their name to Meta in, you know, in order to signify that they're betting on the metaverse, if they're able to successfully launch this and there's high demand and they move a lot of units and it's okay. Hey, you know, they made the right bet. Them going with the whole metaverse play seems to really be paying off. On the other hand, if they launch this headset for $7.99 and it isn't widely received and, you know, they, yeah, if, if they launch this headset and it isn't widely received and it isn't as revolutionary as let's say, they planned for it to be, or if people just aren't adopting their version of the metaverse as quickly as they expect, then I think that's going to be a very bad sign for Meta, for Facebook and Zuckerberg's company in the future. But I guess my question to you, have you heard of this Project Cambria? I guess, have you heard of it recently since we talked about it a long, long time ago? But also... What are your thoughts on the possible price being twice as much as the Quest 2? Do you think it's smart? Do you think it's too much? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so uh, after we spoke about it a while ago, I really haven't heard much about Project Cambria, and not mm-hmm. until you mentioned it. And, you know, I, I kind of looked it up. And it, it definitely seems interesting in terms of the price. Honestly, I'm going to say I think right now the price is fine. And I think it's fine for a couple of reasons. One, I don't think this is going to hurt the quest. As a matter of fact, I think it might end up helping the quest because if, first of all, Oculus makes some fantastic headsets. They were the ones who brought the the VR you know world to the forefront uh, with the original Oculus Quest, or sorry, the original Oculus Rift. Uh, that was, you know, made publicly available years and years and years ago before Facebook and now Meta bought them. So obviously there's a lot of expertise there that's been folded into Meta to make this new headset. And the best headsets are expensive, unfortunately. Uh, if you look at things like the Valve Index, uh, you know, that's that's a pretty expensive headset. And a lot of this cost doesn't just come from the headset, right? It comes from the controllers, what kind of processors inside of it. And I would imagine where the Oculus Quest or the Meta Quest really took off was the fact that it was all integrated. It didn't need to be connected to your phone. It didn't need to be connected to your PC. It was a wholly integrated system that you could just put on and you can do everything you need to. You can play games, you can watch movies, and it made it much easier for people to get into and use on top of the fact that it was a, it was a really good price. So I think if Oculus can make something that's keep on saying Oculus, if Meta can make something that's really cool uh, in terms of technology, something that we haven't seen before, uh, whether it's it's integrating cameras to make it more augmented reality, whether it's something that's really lightweight, whether it's something that has really amazing screens uh, for your eyes, I think that will bring more eyes to what Meta can do if it's something new and something fresh so that you know people who are really into VR will be like oh yeah I'm going to buy this 799 headset that's potentially could be an all integrated system just like the Quest but just way more powerful and you know just use that maybe it can replace a computer maybe it can you know 
because I think that's a really cool future of, you know, you don't have to go sit at your desktop or, or your laptop. You just pop on this headset and you can do everything you need to do in terms of work or which I guess is what Meta is trying to do with the with the metaverse. Right. Mm-hmm. But also, if it is so cool that it's gaining all these headlines and it's it's creating this brand recognition for Meta because it's this really cool, unique, uh, novel new device that's only going to help the quest because people who, who may be like, uh, oh, seven ninety nine is too much, but I can get the cheaper version. That's half the price. And I can get a lot of the same kind of features that, you know, maybe I wouldn't have tried before this halo device came out. So yeah, I, I definitely think it, it, as long as it's cool, as long as it's doing something that's really, really cool that the vibe isn't doing or the, uh, the index isn't doing, or, you know, Oculus's and metas in the past, haven't done. Uh, I think that's going to create a lot of interest in it. Now, whether or not that leads to sales, I don't think VR is at that point. Uh, VR adoption has been slow, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Even with the the more affordable Oculus Quest, that sells really well. But I still think that is that device is far too limited to kind of prove to people who are skeptical about VR. That that's something worth getting into. And I, I think that's what's going to happen here. This product isn't going to change minds of people who are skeptical about VR. But what it could do, Project Cambria could uh, show people who are really excited about VR that, that Meta is doing, making the best possible headsets out there. Um, which, you know, could be a, a, a big, you know, boon for them. But, you know, they're going to have a lot of ex- uh, of competition. We know that... The PlayStation VR is coming. Uh, there has been rumors that it's been delayed from 2022, uh, unfortunately, with the chip shortage and some issues going on there. But that will come eventually. Uh, if this device can beat it to the punch, maybe that, that gets a lot of people interested. But I don't know. For me, I'm still not into VR. Uh, I think a lot is going to have to change with the technology in terms of getting smaller and more compact. Uh, when they can make you know, a pair of glasses that can give me a HUD, then I'll get into some of these headsets. But I think we're very, very far from that point. But yeah, I'm curious, how do you feel about it? Do you think that this is too expensive? Do you think that they could do something really, really cool here? Or do you think this is maybe meta, once again, showing that maybe they lost their way? First, Oculus is a way cooler name than meta. So yeah, yeah, I don't blame you for wanting to say Oculus Quest because it sounds a lot cooler than the meta quest too. Yeah. Um. And I think it's, so I think it's too much for me personally, Mm -hmm. especially, you know, mentioning something like the PlayStation VR 2, which is coming out, which I'm most likely going to get. But, you know, it's interesting that it is so high end and you brought up a good point, you know, that being so high end makes the Quest 2 look a lot more reasonable. You know, it's something that we always talk about Apple doing. They have these ridiculously expensive MacBook Pro M1 Max chips. They have the Mac Studio with a M1 Ultra chip. Who needs all this power? Who's going to spend that much money? Yeah. But one, people are definitely going to spend that much money um, because, you know, it's the newest, it's the best thing. But also, two, it makes their more affordable things seem that much better. Whereas, you know, maybe at the moment, Two ninety nine sounds like a lot for a VR headset. You know, VR isn't even that popular now. But then when you see that, hey, as you mentioned, you know, the Valve Index is much more expensive. If eventually Project Cambria comes out and hey, 
Meta, I wanted to say Oculus there, Meta makes a much more expensive headset and they're selling this one, which can play all the same games. Maybe, you know, it doesn't have all the same features. Maybe the graphics are, uh, you know, slightly less improved, but it plays all the same games. And they're selling you that headset for $500 cheaper. Well, yeah, I'm definitely going to get the Meta Quest 2 then. So, yeah, for me, too expensive, already kind of bought into the PlayStation VR 2. So I'm not really interested in the Project Cambria device, whatever they end up calling it. I think people are definitely going to buy it and it makes the Quest 2 look that much better. And so, you know, we kind of mentioned or I mentioned at the start of this, they're going to be coming out with possibly four headsets. Mm -hmm. So they're already planning two new versions to the lower end or the lower cost Quest headset. So right now they're on the MetaQuest 2. This year they're supposed to come out with the Project Cambria. In 2023, they're supposed to come out with another version, with an updated version of the Quest, so the Quest 3. 2024, they're supposed to come out with another version of the Quest. So, you know, pretty quick update cycle. Not to mention, they're also supposed to be working on AR glasses for 2024. Mm-hmm. Or sorry, by 2024. So not too far into the future, you could be getting your heads up display built into glasses from Meta. Now, let's say it comes out, it's a fairly reasonable price. I mean, I would imagine AR glasses would be more entry level than let's say the Quest 2. Let's say if they come out with glasses, you know, they look pretty spiffy, get your text messages, you get you know, whatever else you want on your glasses. Is that something that could interest you? Do you see that as your first entry point into augmented reality, virtual reality? Or I know you said you're not really interested in virtual like reality headsets, but I guess, do you see yourself being more interested in that or further down the line, getting interested in VR? Uh, I'd, I'd definitely be interested in that. I don't know if I would get necessarily Meta's branded version simply because, you know, they recently released their new, uh, I guess, glasses with a partnership, I believe was with Ray-Ban. Mm-hmm. Uh, so clearly they're they're going for the more premium branded kind of idea. For me, what would be really cool is if they do, if they are able to pull this off and can show the rest of the world, hey... AR, you know, just glasses, whether they're sunglasses, whether they're reading glasses, uh, you know, that that can be a, a really valuable kind of thing for people to use, a tool. I would 100% be down. It's one of the same reasons why I love smartwatches. I don't like having my phone with me all the time. I like to keep my phone relatively away from me. I think a lot of that annoys a lot of people uh, because sometimes it can be difficult to get hold of me, but... One of the reasons why it has been is because I don't use my smartwatch anymore. Uh, and I think if I did have either a replacement smartwatch that's, you know, cool design or some AR glasses or both that can give me a lot of this information that doesn't require me to go into my phone and hopefully even be, I think this is something that Apple's hoping for, the potential next evolution of what the phone is. Maybe you don't need an actual physical phone in your pocket if your watch or your glasses or something that you use every day just has that information built in already. Uh, I think that is definitely the step that I'm going to be interested in. But whether or not Meta can pull that off by 2024, 
uh, we'll see. We'll see. But if they do, I'd, I'd definitely be really excited about it. Okay. Let's say by the end of the year, let's say November this year, the Pixel Watch and Meta's VR glasses are coming out. Which ones do you buy first? Or which one do you buy? They're the same price. Uh, which one do you buy? I'd probably go with the watch first simply because that's a known quantity. That's something that I've used and, you know, has worked amazingly for me in the past. Uh, but, and also glasses, there's a fashion aspect to that, right? If the style doesn't necessarily work with your face, it might not necessarily be. <laughs> a watch is universal. It's always going to work. I will say one thing. This is going back to a previous conversation, though. The rumor is with this Pixel Watch that it's going to be using proprietary watch bands. That's a 100% no-buy for me, if that is the case. Um, and I, You I've, can just get replacement <laughs> bands off Amazon. Well, that's the thing. If it's proprietary, then I can't just get regular watch bands, which is what I use. I use regular leather watch bands with my current uh, smartwatch that are interchangeable and stuff like that. And I, I feel the same way with, with the, the Meta AR glasses if they come out. So I think that's something that needs to be kind of worked out is that unlike a phone for most people including myself a phone isn't a fashion item right it's just a tool when smartwatches and when ar glasses become tools and not fashion kind of pieces which is what they are right now i think that's when the adoption for myself will be really cool and interesting and also you know how it works with people with vision problems like i have astigmatism uh this is one of the reasons why i can't uh use vr even though i know there's corrective lenses for vr and stuff like that i i get nauseous really easily even playing something on a regular tv i can get nauseous so i think a lot of those things will have to be worked out for those ar glasses in terms of depth uh and and not hopefully not making people sick uh will be huge and that's going to take time unfortunately so yeah i think it's definitely going to be the pixel watch for you though do you think you're you're into VR? You already talked about that you want you know this new PlayStation VR. You uh, have used a, an Apple Watch and stuff like that. What is more impressive to you, AR glasses, an amazing VR headset, or just the best smartwatch that has all the features that are that are available for you? At this moment, I would say a VR headset, mm. just because you know we've both said I have an Apple Watch, pretty familiar with it. Yeah, there's like it has all the features I need. There's nothing revolutionary that the watch is going to do that, you know, I don't know, would be that amazing to me. AR glasses, they sound cool, but it's also, I don't know, I personally, if there was an AR headset, AR glasses out right now and a VR headset, I'd be more interested in the VR headset Mm -hmm. simply because. I like the watch. It has notifications, but as I said, it's more of a fitness tracker for me. Uh, so I okay. don't want, yeah. you know, glasses on all the time where it's anytime I get a text, it's popping up. Anytime I get an email, anytime I get some sort of notification on, you know, a social media app, I don't want it popping up in my face all the time. I want to, okay, my phone over there, I'm getting some work done. When I want to check in on my notifi- notifications, I can go and check. If I don't want to, I can just leave it off to the side. So VR headset, yeah, that sounds more interesting to me. That that makes a lot of sense. The watch is a tool for you now. It's about, you know, when you need to work out and stuff like that. Whereas the AR glasses is kind of redundant and a good VR headset is something that's that's new and useful. Uh, whereas, yeah. you know, the AR glasses are just new. <laughs> They're not really all that useful right now, at least in yeah. concept form. So yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
now let's say if there's some sort of partnership with Pokemon and I can just see Pokemon, you know, walking around the street, (laughs) maybe, you know, I see so. Yeah. Pokemon gold glasses. Okay. Now we're talking about something different, but at the moment, VR headset. So our third topic of the podcast is an update to Twitter. Twitter has this new kind of testing feature that they want to bring out called Twitter circle, which is a little bit different from how Twitter normally works. Right now, if you want to tweet, you get your Twitter blasted out and, you know, everyone sees it and stuff like that. And people want choose to interact with it. They can. But Twitter Circle promotes that tweet to a smaller crowd of maybe people that you have as friends or, you know, a limited amount of people that you normally interact with on the platform. And it will show them that tweet and not necessarily blast it out to everyone that is that is currently kind of on the platform. I think this is actually really interesting. And, you know, as someone who who doesn't use Twitter a ton, I believe if this is how the default of Twitter worked, I'd probably be more interested in it. It's kind of a little bit, uh, has a little bit of a Reddit vibe or even uh, a Discord vibe where a Discord chat, you're going to be sending people things that are generally, you know, people you're going to contact or have contact with pretty frequently. So generally those those messages are going to be a little bit more valuable to you. Whereas uh, the way Twitter currently stands is, you know, a bunch of people are tweeting. If you look at your your notifications or your your feed, it's probably going to be from a bunch of people. Then a lot of them might not even be all that interesting to you. But getting a prioritized view of people in your circle seems like a really, really cool idea. Now, this obviously comes after the big purchase that will close in a few months. But it seems like maybe this might not be 100 um, percent tied to to Elon uh, and his purchase of Twitter, but maybe something that they've been working on uh, for a while now and is just now getting uh, put out to to the masses. But two things. One, is this something you're interested in at all? Uh, Do you think this is something that's going to help Twitter be more relevant? And do you think that maybe this is something that Elon might have had an idea about and maybe wants? Do you think that this could help the idea of Twitter blue be more successful in terms of, oh, there's, you know, a select few people who are really engaging with this uh, particular person or this creator. Let's put them in the circle so that they can get more information from them. I'm not particularly interested in it. I mean, at least for my personal use, I think I said on, you know, one of the previous podcasts, mostly what I use Twitter for is to read stories or get updates on things. Mm-hmm. I don't tweet out that much. Mm-hmm. Um, if I do, I think I have like 20, um, 20 followers. So I already have a pretty small circle as it is in terms of people who are immediately seeing my tweets. But, oh, sorry, 23 followers. Got 23. But yeah, I don't know. I'm not that interested in it. I could see maybe if you're someone with hundreds of followers or even thousands really because i think the number that's been quoted is you can have a circle of 150 people and a lot of people are saying this is like the close friends function on instagram where you know you post something to your story you can have it set so that your you know quote unquote close friends are the only ones that are able to see it and i think by default is people you communicate with a lot but you can select who's in your close friends just like on Twitter, you can select who's in your 150 people circle. So I could see, you know, maybe 
if you have, if you're some sort of celebrity, you have thousands, you have millions of followers on Twitter, but hey, you know, you only want this tweet to, let's say, go out to your, your close friends. You only want it to go out to your family. You only want it to go out to your inner circle. I could see where this is something that is more beneficial. You know, if Twitter is your preferred form of communication or, you know, putting out some sort of social status, I could see where this is beneficial. But I don't necessarily see it as something to Twitter blue. I mean, yeah, I don't see it as something that could lead to Twitter blue simply because I think, you know, when we were kind of talking about the idea of Twitter blue and subscribing to someone for exclusive content, this is sort of the opposite of that, right? So whoever is tweeting, whoever's account it is, they get to select who their, you know, their circle is yeah. of people. Um, where I see Twitter blue being more beneficial is maybe people or not maybe people will pay more to get exclusive content. Now, maybe, you know, if you're a celebrity, you could have a special VIP fan page. Yeah. And, you know, people who subscribe a hundred dollars a month to your Patreon get access exactly. to your circle. Yeah. That maybe that's where this is going. But I see it more as like, I literally see it as a close friends version on Twitter where it's okay. My immediate family members, I want them to see this. My very close friends, I want them to see this. But I don't, I don't want the public to see this. Mm -hmm. Now, is it something that maybe Elon's wanted? Possibly. And I guess, yeah, this could, if we look at it in that sense, it could be a testing grounds for, I guess, for an aspect of a Twitter blue subscription. You know, of getting more exclusive access to the creators or to celebrities that you're interested in or that you care about. But yeah, at the moment, it's in a beta testing phase. So yeah. select people, select tweeters, get access to it. And then I guess depending on how it goes for them, if they find it useful, if there's good feedback from it, if people find it useful, then maybe it will get pushed out to the masses. I think it's definitely useful. But then also on Twitter, right? Let's say if you're someone who isn't, doesn't want all your, your tweets being seen by everyone, then you can also set your account to private. So mm -hmm. then it's really only the people that you allow to follow you that can see your tweets. If that's how you want to do it, then why not? Hey, my account is private. If you want to be able to follow me, you have to pay me $100. And then I don't need this Twitter circle. I don't need Twitter blue. Just pay me on my Patreon. I'll accept your follow request. There we go. Same thing, right? But yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out. It'll be interesting to see how useful people find this. But I guess I don't see this as a long-term function, really. What do you think? Well, I kind of agree with you, but for a different reason. And honestly, I love this feature. I think this, this goes to what uh, we were talking about on the last podcast where you have a limited number of people who can be in this membership to see some exclusive tweets. And like you mentioned, you can have up to 150 people in your circle. Anything that's tweeted to the people in your circle can't be retweeted. Uh, and also you get to choose as the person who created the circle who gets to be in it, like you mentioned. So it's not someone subscribing to it, you get to choose. 
that's where I think a little bit of the problem kind of comes in. Because like you said, I think the scenario you put out is perfect. I have 150 spots on my highest tier on my Patreon. And anyone who pays whatever that, it could be $1,000 a month, it could be $100 a month, it could be $10 a month. Whoever pays the highest tier gets into my Twitter circle for that month. And they get my exclusive tweets. That is fantastic. That gives another opportunity for that creator to make money. The problem is, is that Twitter doesn't see any of that money. It goes to Patreon or it goes to whatever whatever service that person decides to use to promote that tier or that that ability to join the circle. And I think that's the issue, right? A lot of the question is, how is Twitter going to make money? Twitter circle is a great tool for the biggest and, and you know, best creators on Twitter to maybe find a way to monetize the circle. But at the end of the day, Twitter is not going to see any percent of that monetization, which is, I think, something they need to rethink. Uh, which, to be clear, I think that's that's a good thing in terms of what Twitter is doing of, okay, they want to give these these tools to creators, regardless of whether or not Twitter itself is going to make money. But at the end of the day, I think maybe what's going to happen after Elon takes over, uh, there's definitely going to be a lot more thought in how are these new features going to help Twitter make money and not just its users make money. Uh, And I think a rethinking of this kind of circle idea is going to be huge where maybe uh, there is a way to uh, monetize it within Twitter itself, as opposed to having to go out. Like you mentioned that, that perfect, I think analogy with, with, with Patreon. Elon said that he doesn't want to make any money off of this deal. Mm. He said that, you know, the reason he's buying Twitter isn't to become, I guess, wealthier off of it. He's already pretty wealthy. But yeah, he's not doing this to make money, to make a profit. He believes Twitter, I guess, can be the the town hall, the utopia that society needs. So I, it, I mean, it would definitely make a lot of sense to find some way to monetize this. Or at least to find a feature that sticks around that they can monetize something like Twitter Blue. But yeah, I don't know if, I don't necessarily think that Elon wanted this and this was something he was planning or something that he's pushed. I think, as you said before, you know, this is probably something that they've been working on for quite some time now. Probably a request they've gotten, you know, from celebrities or notable figures for quite some time now. Um, And it it just so happens that as Elon has bought it, okay, hey, we push it out. And maybe, you know, I think before when the news had first come out that oh, the deal was finalized and you know Elon's going to own Twitter, I think people initially had said that, hey, don't expect any new features to come out. Don't expect anything groundbreaking to happen because typically when a company gets bought, there's a bit of a hiatus on them releasing new features or new products because they don't want to, I guess, ruin the brand image or do something that would cause the buyer to back out of the deal. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's less or it's just over a week since he's officially bought the company and they're coming out with this. So I wouldn't be surprised if maybe there's, you know, a bunch of stuff in the Twitter pipeline that they've been like, oh, we got to wait for the board of directors to approve this. And I don't know how the, you know, the, how the stock price is going to react to this. And now they're like, oh, well, Elon bought us. So let's push out all these pipe dreams that we wanted to get out that we couldn't get out or that we've been sitting on. Yeah. Cause I don't know. It seems like, I mean, not, it seems like Elon is definitely invested financially in buying this company. So I think, 
I think maybe a lot of engineers are seeing the opportunity to put out stuff that they've been holding on to for quite some time. So I think, you know, we were saying, hey, we might not see anything different from Twitter in the next six months. And, you know, we're eight days after that statement and we've already seen something. So I don't know. We could get accelerated uh, feature releases out of Twitter. Yeah. And and you're right. Elon has said that he's not looking to make money, but... Twitter does have a lot of employees they need to pay. Um, yeah. and they're going to need to keep this, this, this profitable somehow or make it profitable somehow, uh, even when it does go private. So, you know, who knows? Maybe the, the, this they do come up with some new ideas. But honestly, if this is the type of stuff that they've been working on, like you said, it's just copying uh, a feature from Instagram, which fine. I mean, I, I've never, I don't use Instagram, so I maybe didn't catch that first off. But I think that's what these companies are going to have to do. They're going to have to start copying their competitors' biggest features uh, and finding a way to to use them and, and make money off of them, which is the smart thing to do. I, I don't think Twitter can go the advertising route that Instagram does. Uh, so, you know, they're going to have to find a, a new way even as they're cop- copying them. But, yeah, I think you're right. I don't think this had much to do with Elon. I don't think it can because this deal is far from closed. Uh, it's a lot of paperwork that needs to be done. I'm using paperwork because I honestly have no idea what needs to be done to get it to close, but I'm sure there's paperwork involved. So yeah, it's going to be a while before Elon has his his fingers on on the pulse of Twitter. And our final topic of the podcast is Apple's new self-repair program has finally gone live. Uh, It's done through a third party. There is a website live right now where you can order parts to repair your phones and, you know, they also have the ability to rent equipment so that you can repair your phones. And interestingly enough, the equipment that you use to repair something like a screen or a battery is the same equipment that they might use in an Apple store. Uh, they also provide you with manuals and step-by-step instructions on how to do these repairs. And it's now fully available to the public, at least in the United States. So the type of devices that you can repair with this program include the iPhone 12, 12 mini, 12 pro, and 12 pro max, as well as the 13, 13 mini, 13 pro, and 13 pro max, and the iPhone SE third generation, which I find interesting because the iPhone SE third generation is pretty much identical to a bunch of other phones that they've released in the past. So I'm kind of surprised that that they're kind of holding it there, but uh, you know, it's a much more limited number of devices than, you know, is actually out there in the wild. There has been a lot of criticism uh, about this uh, program from, you know, repair gurus like iFixit talking about how the uh, equipment to fix the, the phones are a little bit over mm, over designed uh, and kind of expensive and not necessary to do a lot of the repairs that, that Uh, people need to do. Also, in order to get any part or do any repair, you have to use your phone serial numbers. If you're going to replace a screen, the replacement screen does have to be paired with your specific phone. Uh, And also, you can't order any parts or request any repair parts or procedures without having a phone. So for example, if you're a repair shop uh, and you want to stock up on some parts, some official Apple parts so that when someone wants to bring in their phone, you can repair it on the spot. You can't do that. You have to actually have a phone with a serial number that is in this specific list of phones to request a specific 
part that they're offering right now. I believe right now they're focusing on screens and batteries. Uh, there are some other small parts uh, on the website. Uh, but once again, tied to a serial number, it's going to be locked to that phone. Uh, and then you can re request the parts. So there has been a little bit of criticism that honestly, it doesn't seem like a lot of people feel like this goes far enough in terms of repairability. Uh, and I imagine a lot of customers are probably not going to, you know, use this feature and instead just go with an in-store repair. And one of the main reasons is the unfortunate reality is the price it costs to rent the equipment, get the the actual uh, parts to repair your phone is nearly identical to the price it would cost you to just give your phone to Apple for them to repair it for you. So there isn't really much savings there other than if you do send the broken part back into Apple, you could potentially get a rebate. But other than that, you're not really saving much from fixing it yourself. So yeah, it definitely seems like it's a program to kind of uh, appease uh, litigation and and you know uh, Congress and and you know anti-repair kind of new rules that have been coming out, uh, but it's definitely not something that's going to be very useful to a lot of a repair shops and a lot of people who just own devices. But uh, have you seen anything about this this repair self-service repair going live? As someone who owns an iPhone, does this kind of make you happy at all to know that potentially if you do need to repair a part? You can get an actual genuine part from Apple in the future. No, this is stupid. This is very <laughs> stupid. I'm, I don't. Know, I'm someone who's pretty good with my phones. Mm -hmm. I think the last phone that I actually had die on me was the Nexus Five, mm, um, yeah. and that was like torrential downpour. That you know that was back before phones were waterproof, so <laughs> I paid the price for that. But yeah, since then I've you know my last iPhone I kept for five six years and like still works just fine so no i don't think i'm gonna be using this and i think i agree with you i think this has been done to appease the lawmakers to appease people who are saying oh apple is making their stuff you know hard to repair or they're making it illegal to repair and then apple can point and say oh no look hey we've provided people with the opportunity to repair it themselves but i think it is also done to scare people away from trying to repair it themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned how expensive it is. I think, you know, the cost of replacing your battery is maybe $10 cheaper doing it on your own than sending it into an Apple store. And, you know, they have these elaborate devices that I guess they, elaborate devices that they use at the Genius Bar, that they use that, you know, when they repair your stuff, that you're able to rent yourself. And from what I've heard, you don't pay to rent the stuff. Uh, they send it to you. You repair your device. You send it back. But, you know, let's say if you're a third-party repair shop, you could buy these devices outright. And let's say a battery press, $115. Torque driver, $99. A heated display removal pocket, $116. And a display press, $216. And apparently all of these devices are needed to replace your battery. Whereas I think iFixit sells like a $20 kit to replace your battery, which doesn't require any of this. Yeah. So I think they are purposely trying to make it scary. So if you're someone who thinks, 
hey, you know what? I heard you can repair your devices yourself. Let me check out how to do it. And they send you, you know, pretty much a suitcase full of equipment. And it's like, make sure you follow these instructions perfectly, these written instructions. Otherwise, your com- your thing is completely void. Your contract is com- or your warranty is completely void. And if you break your phone, it's your fault. And we're never going to help you out ever again. Whereas, I don't know, if, maybe if they were to go the iFixit route, people would probably be uh, feel a lot more comfortable fixing their own devices. So yeah, I think it's done to appease lawmakers, which I guess it may be successful at. And I think it's done to scare people away from repairing their stuff, which I think it definitely will be successful at. And, you know, this whole, you can't get a, let's say, replacement battery unless you have a serial number for an appropriate device. And if it's not on a list and you can't get the battery or if you're a repair shop that wants to stock up on genuine Apple stuff, I hope that that will at some point be overturned. Maybe Apple will decide to do it themselves, but I think it's probably going to get to the point where, okay, lawmakers and Congress people have to overturn that because that just, that just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So, I mean, and if I had to be an Apple, you know, fan, I'd say it's a step in the right direction. It may not be perfect, but you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. And last year, you couldn't repair this yourself. You had to bring it to a genius bar. And hey, look, you save $10 replacing your battery. And you get this fun experience of, you know, pretending like you work at a genius bar yourself and fixing your own phone. It brings you closer to your phone. When you send in that part you replaced, you uh, you save the environment and you're doing your part to help reduce the carbon footprint of the world. So... You know, Apple is doing something good here. But yeah, this is stupid. It's just to scare people away. And I think it, it, it I think it like honestly, it is a step in the right direction. I think it's just a very small baby step. Uh, I think it's a like crawl and be like a baby rolling over from its back onto its stomach size step. And I think Apple can do a lot more and. I think eventually they'll be forced to do a lot more in the future, but yeah, at the moment it's a small step. Yeah. I completely agree with you. Uh, really small step. And for me, it's the fact that, okay, fine. You can't get parts beforehand. That's fine. You have to use your serial number. Okay. But the fact that they're still locking parts of your phone to a specific serial number is just so ridiculous and so stupid and, and, I mean, if you look at, for example, here, a couple of things that you can do. Let's say the iPhone SE third generation. You can replace the battery, bottom speaker, camera, display, SIM tray, and Taptic engine, which is the little vibration motor that, you know, makes the sound when you're, makes a feeling when you tap the screen, stuff like that. Um, that's fantastic. Uh, and I'm, I'm being sarcastic because let's say, for example, you wanted to replace the speaker it will cost you $42.31 to get the parts to replace the speaker of the kit. But then on top of that, you have to get the iPhone SE third generation toolkit, which is another $49 to rent that for seven days. Uh, and when you click on the rental information, they say something very specific here. And uh, there's a question that says, do I need more than one toolkit? And their answer is, toolkits are customized for each Apple device model which I don't know if that makes a ton of sense. I don't, 
I've seen plenty of iFixit videos of people who know how to repair devices. I haven't seen them have to get specific tools for every single Apple device that they use. Clearly, Apple could make a universal toolkit, but I think this goes back to what you're saying. They're trying to scare people into going into the store because, oh, what if I accidentally order the wrong toolkit? Or, oh, why would I do this when I could just pay $10 more and have someone do it for me? Or, oh, no, I see here that uh, on their website, there is a, I want to get the exact word here, wording, the universal display removal fixture, which is a tool that's designed to, I believe, remove the display. And that's $160. Or the display press to reattach the the display. That's an extra $216. Nowhere does it say if this comes in the repair kit, which I imagine it doesn't because, well, hopefully it does. But nowhere, if you go anywhere on this website, does it say what is in in this toolkit? So yeah, it's just being as vague as possible, as difficult as possible, uh, so that customers can't really repair stuff on their own. Uh, where I think this is really going to help, like you said, baby steps. At least what this can do is, let's say, for example, I know my screen is cracked. Uh, I can go on this website if I live in the States, put in my serial number, order a new screen, and potentially take that to my local repair shop and have them repair it for me, which could be really cool um, because that hasn't been possible in the past. In the past, you had to get some third-party screen that you don't know if it's really to Apple spec, and maybe certain features might not work the same way because it's not paired to that specific device. So at least there's a little bit um, of a solution to that. But once again, that's a solution to a problem that Apple created uh, and not necessarily a, a solution to a problem that should exist, should have existed in the first place. So, yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with you. This is a little bit of a, a one step forward, two steps back kind of a situation. Yeah. And I've watched quite a few iFixit videos. I've watched quite a few Jerry Rig Everything videos. I've seen a lot of Apple devices taken apart and put back together without any of those, you know, special presses or heat gun machines that they claim you need on their website. Yeah. Well, I get, I guess they're trying to make it the uh, McDonald's of fixing your phones, right? You don't need so. all that specialized equipment <laughs> to make fries and burgers, but Hey, anyone can do it. So if you have it uh, installed in your restaurant. So maybe that's what Apple's trying to do. Like, yeah, you make a Big Mac. It's a, it's a formula. You don't really necessarily need to know what you're doing. Yeah. Guess any closing statements? Uh, no, it's just, uh, it's going to be fun to see what's going on with, with Apple in the future. There's some rumors about this, this new iPhone 14. Hopefully uh, we get some, some concrete, more information on what the iPhone 14 is actually going to look like. And, what would really get me excited is if maybe some rumors come out that they take uh, repairability seriously and, and maybe change some stuff on that. But I think that's a little bit of a wish that we will never see. Yes, I think so, too. Uh, take it easy, everyone in podcast land. Catch you in the next episode.